Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I am your host, Dr. Julieta Gabiola, clinical professor of medicine at Stanford University. What drew me to medicine was the science, the innovation, and the promise for a comfortable life. But what has kept me in medicine are the real people, their lives, and their stories, as well as the translation of medical innovations into practical applications. This podcast will explore experiences beyond the walls and corridors of the hospital, laboratories, and clinics. I invite you to share in our journey seeking to preserve and improve our lives, our sense of balance, and our well-being. Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast, episode 20. I love my color. The journey of immigrants, their sons, and daughters. Color is an element of visual language. Our brain is compelled to find meaning in what it sees, what stands out, and simultaneously assign value to it. Color is used to establish identity and symbolism. Color elicits both cultural and psychological association with ideas, concepts, and feelings. These effects can have positive and negative connotations depending on your framework or mindset. In this podcast, color will be discussed in the context of race, culture, and country of origin. Certainly, our ways of communicating color of our skin have undergone multiple transformations. Statements like colored people to people of color, from Negro to Black to African Americans, from Orientals to Asians to Asian Americans, from Hispanics to non-white Hispanics to Latino to Latinx. Meanwhile, white remains white. What drives us to this euphemism treadmill? Is it because words and attitudes are inseparable? Or is it our attempt to be socially proper or politically correct? Or do we want to convey our sensitivity to people's feelings? Is it an attempt to recognize race in a different social construct? What is it then? In this Medicine for Good podcast, we will discuss color of our skin within the construct of immigration and how immigrants, their sons and daughters, help shape American culture or how the American culture has shaped them. We will cover the push and pull factors that affects movement of people to and from their countries of origin, whether this movement is due to escape from poverty or persecution or ethnic cleansing or as a result of natural disaster or reunification with loved ones, or is it from quest for a better life? Regardless, the U.S. is a popular destination for migration. Immigration in the United States is viewed differently by people. We all know what the positive and the negative ones are. Research suggests that diversity and immigration have net positive effects on productivity and economic prosperity with reduction of offshore work. Economists from Harvard and Yale found that the age of mass migration contributes to higher incomes, productivity, innovation, and industrialization. This lead to less poverty, less unemployment, higher rate of urbanization, and greater educational attainment for the United States. A 2017 study found that immigrants' genetic diversity was correlated with significant positive economic measures and outcomes. I am pleased to welcome three guests today, each representing a culture. We will explore their journey and contribution to the U.S. society. 
Walter Lee immigrated with his parents from Taiwan when he was 12 years old. He has been in the United States over 50 years. He started as a pre-med student at Stanford University, and due to lack of financial support, he switched to economics. He frequently guest lectured at Stanford Graduate School of Business. He used his skills in science and economics to help high-tech startups for over the last 30 years now. Currently, he's involved with his first love, not his wife, but his love for medicine. He's involved in teaching health and wellness. Monica Barajas is a first-generation Mexican-American raised in Northern California. She was born at Stanford, where my kids were born as well. The youngest of four children whose entire family migrated from Jalisco, Mexico. She's an animal lover, an adventurer who loves to travel. I frequently talk to her about her travel, and it fascinates me. She works at Stanford University Healthcare Systems, and she is in school to be an RN. Chloe Salas was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area to a Spanish-Filipino father and a Chinese-Filipina mother. Growing up at the intersection of multiple cultures, Chloe hopes to enter the world of medicine to help bridge the gap between Western physicians and immigrant patients. Her interests include narrative medicine, documentary making, and writing. She hopes to combine her love for the humanities and medicine to help advance culturally tailored healthcare. Thank you for accepting my invitation. As someone who started on a working visa as a nurse, waited five to eight years to be an immigrant, and then another five years to be naturalized as a United States citizen, the journey of assimilating to this culture, learning the language, and learning to speak English have been quite a journey for me. So I welcome the three of you. Welcome, Monica, Chloe, and Walter. So tell us your journey in the U.S. and how being people of color affects your assimilation in this culture. And if you could also tell us about an early experience that you remember and how it affected you as a person. Dr. Gabriela, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. We've had plenty of conversations about this sort of thing. Well, I'm the youngest of four. I have two older sisters and a brother. They were actually all born in our hometown, La Barca, Jalisco, which is a a part of central Mexico. And it's a coastal state. And my family came over from Mexico in about 1985. They came during the amnesty, right? So I think it was like Ronald Reagan era. One of my aunts who lives in Chicago helped my father, some uncles come over, come to the States. But I was born here. So I was born in 300 Pasture at Stanford. And I was raised knowing Spanish, first language I spoke. I read Spanish. But in my household, right, I've always been the non-Mexican, the you're not Mexican, you were born here. And growing up in my household, also being the youngest, it always really got to me because I was always just, you're not Mexican, you're American, you were born here. You don't know our struggles. And I think it made it different for how I grew up compared to even my siblings. I was always fighting with them or I was always trying to prove something that, no, I'm here, I'm Mexican, I speak Spanish and I eat spicy food. I know all those songs. And so for me, growing up, it was always me trying to prove something. 
being here in the States too, everyone's always like, oh no, you're Mexican. Look, you have an accent. You speak really a lot of Spanish. And even growing up, my dad was strict. And so we weren't allowed to speak English in the house. We needed to listen to Spanish music, watch Spanish TV and everything. And I think for myself, one thing that I really remember, and I'm just never going to forget this, was my whole life, my siblings, they had to go through that whole process of going to San Francisco and getting everything figured out for them to get their papers and get their residency and what they had to do. I deal with that because I was born here. I was already naturally a citizen, but I was always there with them. And I remember years, it was years we would have to take BART. My mom couldn't drive or we would take the bus down to San Francisco. I just remember the day that they got their residency, what it meant for our family, for them, that I realized it was a big deal. We all cried. We all cried because not only that, we would also go and visit our family as much as we could to Mexico. And I was the only one that could worry free come and go to the country. If my family, my siblings went, they would have to get like snuck back in. And so I remember just going with them and we all just broke down and cried. And it was just a day I'm never going to even ever forget. I remember those experiences when I became an immigrant, when I got my green card. The card was such a milestone for us. So I remember falling in line every year, waiting to see whether I could renew my working visa. It's an anxiety-stricken event every time I go to the immigration to renew my visa. So year after year, renewing my working visa as a nurse, not knowing whether it's going to be renewed or not renewed. And then finally, when I got my immigration papers, and then finally also being a U.S. citizen, those are for immigrants such a milestone that people who were born here probably don't have to go through. But I'm glad that even if you were born here, you partake on that experience with your cousins and probably learn a lot from that experience. I'm sure, Walter, you also had that experience. So tell us about your experience when you first started in the U.S. Yeah, we actually entered in Seattle and then traveled to New York. So my first place where we lived was actually in Queens, New York. And the thing What an was, introduction to the United States. And because our neighborhood at the time was Latin American or Hispanic, I ended up learning English with a very Spanish accent, which freaked out my mother, especially when we go and play soccer, man. You know, it's just like, <laughs> and then, of course, sixth graders, right? Elementary school. So the culture at the time, because I didn't speak English, I learned ABC here. So I actually came with no English background. So I had to learn English. The culture, my immediate class environment were all the kids that were non-English speaking. The teacher would say the instruction in English and the front row would translate it into Spanish and then go all the way to the back of the class in Spanish. Well, I didn't understand Spanish either, so <laughs> I was still lost. <laughs> and of course, not being part of the English-speaking <clears throat> class, I was sitting in the back row just because. So that was kind of tricky. And then the other part that was interesting, culturally speaking, was the kids at the time had a culture where fighting was a way to gain status or stature. It was a rite of passage, perhaps, because you're somewhere between 11 and 13. And, you know, you really don't have all the gray matter connected, but you, you do things, right? 
being boys, the best thing, and they see a Chinese guy, at the time you would say a Chinaman, who by default at the time, I don't know if you remember, I should probably frame this as saying, this is with 2020 hindsight that I'm sharing you this story. At the time, it completely freaked me out because at the time, Bruce Lee was really big, Kung Fu. I remember that. (laughs) So everybody, they see a Chinese person, they think you are a Kung Fu master. And so I knew nothing of it, having said that. And of course, so every day at school, I would be beaten up. I became afraid to go to school because I didn't want to be beaten up. Plus the fact that I can't explain myself anyway, because I don't speak English. So the teacher couldn't help me because they don't really know what happened. I think I didn't really understood it until maybe 20, 30 years later upon reflection. One day I was watching a Bruce Lee movie and all of a sudden it dawned on me what the kids were doing. They they were simply looking for, I will call it uh, using a, a medieval term, jousting, to gain self-respect, gain status, pecking order rights, however you want to call it, right? Go back to Maslow's hierarchy, etc. That was how they articulated themselves. However, me being on the receiving end and not having been trained in the martial arts, it didn't help me. In fact, it was very peculiar. One of my friends turned out to be a fellow student from back home. It ended up at the same class, at the same school. So he would take the fight on my behalf in a way to protect me and do the fights. Now, we typically get very bloodied and all that kind of messed up every day. So it was not a pleasant experience, but it took 20, 30 years to understand what culturally, physically happened at the time. To me, it's encouraged me today to look back and say, how can I look at it from the other person's point of view in gaining that insight so that not only was I completely misinterpreting what was going on, because then I was afraid to go to school, right? And of course, for all good Chinese parents, it freaked out my mother. She cried. She broke down and cried because how can you not go to school? We finally brought you out. You're here. And yet now you don't want to go to school. That's just non-starter. Coming here was hard enough. So I ended up learning. We moved to Long Island and I ended up being one of two Chinese families in the whole town at the time. This is back in the 60s, okay? (laughs) So I ended up learning English properly. (laughs) Relearn English properly. (laughs) That's interesting. Even talking about my own experience, in the Philippines, we used English in the classroom, but we never really used it as a means of conversation. So it's really still hard to speak English totally or to tell a story in English. So we retreat back to our language. I remember when I was in the ICU, I told the patient, I said, Mr. Smith or Mr. David, could you please turn over? I'll remove your ship. I meant sheets. So he was screaming bloody murder to me. And I could not understand why he was mad. Uh, I said, well, I was just trying to help you. Well, you can't help me because you said that I shit it in my bed and I didn't. And I said, oh, well, I actually didn't say that. And the American nurse next to me said, yes, honey, you said that. I heard you. And then looking back, I said, wait a minute, what did I say? Well, so for me, I felt that I didn't say anything wrong. But when I look back, I actually said, shit, right? Because in Filipino, we don't have long E. The next day, I was trying to come contemplate on how I would say this. So it really scared the heck out of me to speak. So I kept practicing it and I still couldn't get it. So the next day I decided 
Mr. David, could you please turn over and remove your bed linens? Because linens, uh, I could the sense. word, yes. So that's talking about how we use euphemism to drive a point, right? So we have to just be clever. And I started being clever and I remembered looking, watching TV and just basically repeating after them every words that comes out of their mouth. And oh, that's, that's how, dangerous. That's how I learned English. I bet Chloe would have another experience. Tell us, Chloe, what's your early experiences being a child of an immigrant? Yeah, um, I'm happy to talk about them. Well, for me, I grew up in a multicultural family. My dad, as you mentioned, comes from the Spanish Filipino side, and my mom comes from the Chinese Filipino side. And growing up, I always felt really self-conscious that I was never just one thing like the rest of my friends. And I think my dad could tell that I was really upset about this. And he pulled me aside one day and he was like, Chloe, do you know why it's good that you have so many different sides to you, so many different cultures? And I said, why, dad? And he said, because you get to celebrate all the different holidays and have more days off compared <laughs> to all of your classmates. It's true because, you know, all the Chinese kids had Lunar New Year and I could claim that I was Chinese and so I could have those days off. And then we were also coming from a Catholic background. So Easter, Good Friday, all of that I also had off. So it was sort of like a double whammy for all of us. Oh, I tell you, when I was in Long Island with a different culture, different setting again, my family was Protestant. Our neighbor was Catholic and the rest of the whole development neighborhood were Jewish. So I had the best Jewish cuisine. The, the food I just fell in love with because it's phenomenal. It, it's phenomenal. Exactly. It was lovely. And before I actually learned to speak English, just one other thing psychologically, I did the best I can to duck out of learning English. I did absolutely every trick in the book. Oh, I don't understand. No, 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 understand. no, understand. Right. Until one day after some Jewish holiday where there were literally no kids in school, there were like three of us cats who were non-Jewish with a few teachers. Right. The teacher finally sat me down and said, look, stop cutting loose. I'm going to hold you to it. You're going to learn this. That's when I realized I couldn't get away with it anymore. Later on, I used that as an advantage, like looking Filipino. So one time somebody knocked on my door asking for donations. Like there are all these things, save the eagle, save the, you know, whatever. So someone came into my door and I didn't feel like contributing. So as soon as I opened the door, the moment they speak, we have this promotion. I said, no, 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 speak English. Me, me, housekeeper, housekeeper, no speak English. <laughs> they just said, oh, and they moved away. So that was an advantage. Monica, how about you? Did they force you to learn Spanish only or some other families will just force you to speak English so you will be assimilated right away? You said um, that in your family, they force you to speak only Spanish? Well, they were here two years when I was born. So my siblings, they were only allowed to speak Spanish. My first language because of that was only Spanish. So I didn't actually start learning English until I got into kindergarten and started in elementary school. So I only grew up knowing Spanish. Then I would do all the ESL classes and everything in school. But once we got back home, we were only allowed to speak Spanish. Honestly, even to this day, when I get home, for the most part, only speak Spanish because my mother only speaks Spanish. I think that's another thing that I've had to grow up with that my mother, she's been here over 30 years and her English is not very great at all. And so I think with her thing, it's always been this 
Like she's embarrassed the shame of not knowing the language. It's funny because she can understand me. I can have a conversation in the sense of that I can speak to her just exactly how I'm speaking to the three of you, but she will not respond to me in English. She will only respond to me in Spanish. It's a, it's a blessing and it's a curse. I feel like it's a blessing for me because I would like to think that I have a pretty well-developed Spanish. I can communicate pretty well with our patients that we see. I feel like I communicate well with them. So for me, being sort of forced to speak Spanish at home helped me a lot in the long run. But for my mother, she still like will go out and be like, no, 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 I don't know. I don't know. You helped me do it. And like 30 years later, I'm still interpreting for her or my siblings still are. But I love the fact that I am able to communicate. Uh, how, how is that, Monica? How do you take that as an advantage when you, for example, travel to Mexico? How does it feel to be so aware of the language and the culture you go back to Mexico. Are you accepted there? I am accepted, yes, but they always know that I'm not from there. They are like, no, no, you're not Mexican. Where are you really from? And I'm like, mm -hmm. oh no, no, I'm from Jalisco. It's just a couple hours away. No, no, you're not. You have a different accent. And even going to different countries. I Your behavior is completely different. Yeah, I went to Germany and they were like, I like to go and I like to, hey, yes, I'm Mexican. Yeah. And they're like, no, you're not. You're uh, American. They'll know. Oh, yeah. Say, that happens to me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or I'll say, oh, yeah, I'm from California. Yeah, that's where you're from. You're from California. That's it. So I'm very glad that I can go to Mexico or even just any Latin American country and communicate. Yeah, yeah really so being a healthcare worker is a plus to know how to speak Spanish, especially now with the pandemic where the Hispanic population had been basically overburdened by the pandemic, right? So they're disproportionately affected by it. And I know it's been a challenge and I always ask you to interpret for me in, in the clinic. So how about you, Chloe? When you go back and forth to the Philippines, how does it feel to go back to your roots and tell us about that experience? Sure. My experience is actually pretty similar to Monica's in that they can always tell that I am not truly, in their words, Filipino. But that's not just because I have an American accent when I speak Tagalog or my mannerisms are different. It's also because I look so Chinese. It's so funny because last time we were there last year before COVID, we were on a river cruise tour and all of the hosts in front of us were speaking in Tagalog and I was listening and they're like, oh, did you get a group of Chinese people today? And they were saying gently racist things about Chinese people. <laughs> at the end of the tour, I just turned back and I looked at them and I said, hey, brother, hey, kuya, which is brother in our language. Hey, brother, it's just my face that's Chinese, but my heart is Filipino, which is a saying that my mother has often said to me and the look on their faces when I said that in Tagalog, just their places went completely white. It was so funny. And then we ended up having a really good laugh about it. And they apologized and it was fun. We had food together and we just spent the whole rest of the day together. And it felt nice to be able to have a part of my identity that is not necessarily shown. But it does often mean that I feel like I have to perform to convince other people of my Filipino-ness. My sister, in fact, is often mistaken for being Mexican or some other like Latina. And so when we're walking down the streets together in the Philippines, everyone says, to me, ni hao, I don't speak Chinese. And then they say to her, hola. 
it's fascinating how people basically formulate their own judgment or what we don't expect, right? So one time I was invited for an interview on a TV station in the Philippines. And so they asked me to send them my resume. So I sent them my resume. It's not my 40-page resume. It's just basically (laughs) like one paragraph resume. And they found out that I'd been in the U.S. for more than 40 years. So the anchor person who would interview me felt really anxious because she thought that she would have to speak in English all the time and she was not comfortable. And so she was about to decline the interview and stuff like that. So I said, oh, I I said, I'm fluent in Kapampangan, which is the native language. And she was shocked. She was shocked that I'd been in the U.S. for 40 years and I'm fluent on my own local language plus Tagalog, which is the national language in the Philippines. And she was shocked. And so she became so relaxed when I talked about the experience that we have in our project in the Philippines, all in my native tongue. So that was a basic surprise for her. How about you, Walter? Any experience like that when you go back to Taiwan? Sure. Because my English is pure, because I learned it here, people think I'm ABC. So they don't think that I understand Chinese when I'm fluent. So I play that business-wise in reverse, right? Especially when I'm in China. If I'm in China, then I play American, right? And of course, I understand everything they're saying. So yeah, you can play it both ways. And because of that, I think because I've been working so concertedly to simulate into the American culture, that my behavior sets me out. You're not Chinese, right? And when they find out I am actually a first-generation immigrant, they're, they're shocked. Because usually a first-generation immigrant sounds very Chinese, could barely speak English. Whereas my English is fluent and I could barely speak Chinese. It's backwards, right? And the way I carry myself then also throws me off from their point of view. Monica said, you're from California, (laughs) or, you know, at least from the States, right? So it's a different interaction and it's subtle, but it's different. But if I'm among the Chinese crowd for a while, then I become much more Chinese. I pick up all the cues and things like that. Then my behavior will shift the other way. So it depends on who I'm hanging out with for a period of time. This is also why my mom doesn't let me go to the market with her in Manila when she bargains. You know, those bargaining markets where you just try to like lowball each other consistently. Because as soon as I go, she says, I go 20% higher. Yeah, it's 20% higher as soon as you have an American accent, right? Like I can speak Tagalog fluently, but as soon as they hear my accent just goes up and my mom's like, everything that I work so hard for to secure this price just goes down the drain when you open your mouth. So keep it shut. I could bargain because I grew up as a merchant in the market. So I teach all my students when we go to the market. I teach them how to bargain. That's really my great background. So let's uh, digress to another topic. What is in your background that basically shape your trajectory now in terms of what you're doing? Walter, I know your love was medicine, and unfortunately, you did not pursue medicine. And then you became an economist. And then now, 180 degree turn, you went back to what you love the most, which is health. So tell me how was that became a path for you? Very strange because my personal financial background was that I got cut off at 18. So I've been on my own since I was 18. 
But then I got admitted to this fancy school called Stanford. So it took me nine years to do my undergraduate. And I worked full time when I had to stop out, pay my student loan from maximum to zero three times. My college education was my senior year. That one year where they finally university financial aid says, okay, we can classify you now as an independent and we can now give you this huge grant scholarship. But even then I was working three different part-time jobs. Financially took me survival mode. My mindset was survive, 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 how to put food on the table. I had to get my bachelor's before I got my MRS. And then I, I graduated in June. We got married in, in August and then so on and so forth. So that took a very long time. And even today, I frequently find myself thinking or feeling in a survival mode mindset. So that's trajectory number one. Number two, I did do very well, apparently, because I don't have an MBA, yet I was invited to teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business because I was a venture capitalist. So somehow I got recruited based on performance versus based on degree because I don't qualify for any of the jobs I held because I was always recruited, right? So at that point, they don't care. That's how it evolved. And then when I finally was in the process of shutting down my private equity fund, I discovered that I had cancer. So all of a sudden, all the stuff that I had studied 30, almost 40 years earlier came flooding back. Even though I was working so many jobs at the time, when I was in school, I was doing food service, I was doing janitorial, I was doing... Uh, radio radiation safety as a health physicist, <clears throat> I was able to get back into literature really fast. And it just came back, right? So it's like, I, I learned more 30 years after I left the subject than when I was in it somehow. Now I'm using that to coach people and advise people on their health and wellness through nutritional orientation on a preventative mode, rather than a, I call it curative mode and trying to get people well. I cannot use the word cure because nutrition nutritional approach, not FDA approved. So that word is outlawed. So I use the word fully managed. I have fully managed my cancer situation. Other people found out about it and started asking me questions. At this point, all of a sudden, I have been literally, it, it went from dozens to hundreds. I, I mean, literally, I have been able to help hundreds of people at this point. Wow. Wow. It's amazing because as you all know, all of us know, right, that prevention is probably better than cure. And if you happen to look at most of the chronic diseases from hypertension to diabetes, to heart disease, to stroke, kidney failure, and even cancer, the value of lifestyle modification, either exercise, nutritional, and maintaining a decent body weight and decreased stress, sleep promotion, those lifestyle modifications really do help in preventing the progression or even the onset of chronic diseases. I've had like a number of individuals who have been given six months or less in hospice recover to full health. Wow. And so the doctor said they couldn't find the cancer. I mean, one lady that I was working with, I saw her going back into the Cancer Institute. So I sent her a well-wish note. And afterwards, she came back and she sent me this big, long text in beautifully articulated course of events saying that the doctors can't figure out what happened. They cannot identify any cancer cells in her system. She has been taken off all protocols, all follow-ups, all blood tests because they can't find anything. I think it's that that we actually fail to meaningfully discuss the genesis of that and what helped that. I think there's so much to learn about the integration of Western and Eastern medicine and nutrition and nutraceuticals and stuff yeah. like that. So 
Uh, Chloe, how about you? I know you had this love for literature and humanities, and you love getting people's stories and write about them and integrating them into the science. So tell us about that journey for you. For me, being able to capture a patient's story is not just about seeing what patient they are on a chart, but also understanding the context of their culture within their health. And the reason this felt so personally important to me was my grandma mother worked as a CNA at Stanford for over 10 years. And every day from kindergarten to junior year of high school, we would drive her and drop her off at 300 Pastor at six in the morning. And she had a number of health problems, including diabetes. And I remember one time we went in to check with her doctor and the doctor said, everything's looking okay for now. Maybe just like lay, go a little easier on the hamburgers. And the doctor left the room. And then my grandmother turned to me and in Tagalog, she said, what the hell are hamburgers? I feel like what's happening a lot of the times is that these Western physicians, and it's not their fault because because it's what their training demands, right? But these Western physicians are often making assumptions about what a patient knows and doesn't know culturally in terms of their health. You can't tell a Filipino grandmother not to eat hamburgers because she doesn't eat them in the first place. What she has instead is high sodium fish sauce. You can't tell any of these people what to eat if you don't understand what they actually do eat, right? And so every time I collect a patient's story, what I'm wondering is, who are you? What is your culture? What is your home life like? Because these are the things that are going to dictate to me what the best course of action would be for you. Oh, I love that. I love that. We're missing that a lot in medicine. And I think my favorite portion of the interview is the social history, like what patients do, uh, how many kids do you have? Like, I always love to ask what their kids are doing, because the next time they come back to me, I said, hey, what is your Chloe doing now? Are they doing well in college? And they said, how do you remember that, Dr. Gabriola? I have that all written on their chart. And I said, I just remember that. And that really spikes a lot of positive reinforcement in my encounter with patients. And the other one is, although I try to speak their language, it always gives a smile on their face when I try to speak Yiddish, for example, on an elderly Jewish person. I would say a few words in Yiddish and they smile and they talk back to me in Yiddish and I could not answer back. Same thing in Spanish. So I always try to do that. I wish I had mastered different languages. I wish I did that in the past. So Monica, you had such an advantage because you're well-versed in Spanish. Tell us about an experience, how assimilating to this culture had benefited you or had been a counterproductive thing for you. So Chloe. I guess the story again relates to my grandmother because it was really her experiences that drew me so much to medicine. My grandmother did not get diagnosed diabetes until after she immigrated to the United States in the 80s when she was well into her 40s. And I think this is something we see over and over again, right? The immigrant paradox. Somehow immigrants are really healthy before they leave their home countries and they get to the US or whatever country of destination and suddenly their health goes down. For us, it was really this lack of knowledge in the literature and in the clinic about the risk of diabetes, specifically in Asian Americans and in Filipino Americans. I don't know what the number is now, Dr. G, but I know that the screening number for BMI for diabetes tends to be higher, whereas for Asians, the recommendation is now to screen at 23, right? These are numbers that we wouldn't have been able to come up with had we not conducted race-specific or ethnic-specific population health research to understand how our genetics and how our cultures affect the way that we might metabolize drugs or affect the way that our nutrition might influence our risk for diabetes. Being able to see that the numbers were there, the incentive was there, but by the time the screen at 23 initiative came around, my grandmother was already 
very, very high risk and taking insulin every day and things like this. So I hope that in the future, we can continue to push forward on race-specific or ethnic-specific population health research, just so that no one has to experience what my grandmother and so many other immigrant people have experienced. Only recently that we were able to disaggregate data based on not just Asian population, right, but the Asian is huge. You have the Korean, the Thai, the Japanese, Filipinos, and stuff like that. And each one carry their own respective trends. Mm -hmm. I think for us Filipinos, not only that we have the predisposition to hypertension because we're a culture with high salt intake, and then you go to the United States and get used to the super seismic portions. I, I wanted to conduct a study on what the BMI trajectory of Filipinos who migrated to the U.S. I bet the curve is like this, right? So I think more to be learned. And now the pandemic not only highlighted the value of getting more data on that because it's really truly the people of color who are more susceptible to the consequences and incidents of COVID-19. But probably those are also the population who needed the most help, right? In terms of reaching out to them. And also, if you look at the social determinants of health, that's a rich population that we have to actually look into. So in many aspects, I think migration not only contributed to the diversity and the richness of the culture, but it also affected many, many angles of the culture from education to health, to economics, to psychological well-being and stuff like that. So I think I am trying to look at the time. We are more than the time that we are allotted to for the podcast. I would like to basically come down with the take-home points that you want our listeners to take away from this podcast today. So whoever wants to start giving their take-home points. Well, I guess I will kick that off at least. From practical experience and also just going through the transition process, I think the thing that hit me so hard along the way is to make the effort to really, like Chloe, like Monica, understand the backstories because so much of that backstory implicate how our response is going to be. And as a standing observation, I frequently find that those, those symmetry is to X too high. I frankly just cut it in half and all the dizziness and all the falling down and break their hips and all that stuff goes away. So that's just a macro commentary there. But then part of it is really how do we then customize and look at individuals as individuals and be able to fractionalize that data? Because if you use the typical American BMI who are 40% obese, well, gee, aren't you always going to be ODing somebody? Because garbage in, garbage out. Understand the basis of which that dosimetry has come to pass and then analyze it to the current person that's sitting in front of you. To me, that's one of the huge things. And then the cultural diversity, where I came here first initially back in the 60s, where I wasn't even part of the American culture. I was part of the Hispanic culture to some extent. And so to learn and understand each other and not miss, uh, how should I say, not stereotype. There's some truth to the stereotype, but dealing with individuals as individuals. I think that to me, the biggest takeaway is make the effort to dig in and actually understand who's in front of you. I think my biggest takeaway largely follows Dr. Lee's in that 
in harnessing things like narrative medicine in my case, or documentary filmmaking, or medical script writing. All of these things I seek to do because I would like to see more of a human touch in medicine. A few years ago, I was studying abroad in France under a neurosurgeon who also loved medical writing. And he told me that one of the most disappointing things in medicine these days is that when you enter a room in the clinic, the doctor is facing the computer and not you. I know that there are a lot of inevitable compromises that have to be made in the modern age, such as being able to facilitate the 15-minute window in which you have to be able to hear a patient out and prescribe the medications. But I would like to see more of that human face-to-face -face interaction between doctors and their patients. I think even a small little change in the clinic, such as not having those computers obstructing the patient's view of the doctor, would be a great small first step to help us return that human touch to medicine a bit. I see that as an advantage for me, Chloe, because I don't know how to type. So I'm forced to actually just really face my patients, which I love. So I push away the computer to the dismay of our leaders when we were beginning to use Epic because they want us to type in on those. But I refuse to do that because it disrupts my connection to the patients. So I want to establish rapport and connection with the patients first before I establish connection with my computer. I still do that to this day. I appreciate your comment on that. Monica? Well, I think my biggest takeaway is I just want people to hear this and just to know that you know we're all different we all come from different backgrounds but we're all here right and so we're all in this melting pot and us in particular we're in medicine and with everything that's gone on with the pandemic I just think that we need to be kind to each other. We need to be understanding towards each other and patient. I think that's really important, especially with everything that's been going on. And I'm very much the person that I've been having a little bit of a hard time because I like to smile and it's so hard with masks nowadays, but I think we have to just make that extra effort to show people to just be kind and try to be understanding. I think that's really my main takeaway from this. I, I think in medicine where part of our communication is really the nonverbal, so that can be accomplished not just by smiling and showing your big smile, but also with body language, with the inflection of your voice and the twinkle in your eyes and stuff like that. Of course, my eye now is really, I have bleeding, so I have to keep it small. But with all of that, we could even convey compassion and empathy to the patients, even under the mask. So I think the nurses have this thing about the emotion behind that mask or something like that, which is great. I think for me, my message is really increasing our respect for one another and increasing our support for one another, especially during this pandemic. Sometimes it's hard for me because some of our leaders express values that are opposing to what I believe in. The systemic racism, which is not actually new, it's been there, but it's just magnified now because some of the leaders have provided a venue for it. But to counter that and to teach our youth about professionalism and ethics and good attitude is still quite a challenge. I find it challenging nowadays. I think I like each one of us to really work on that and continue the quest for humanity. I really would like to thank you. Uh, I'm sorry to cut this out. I, I always say that this podcast would need more and more follow-up on this. So feel free to connect with us later. And thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Thank you, Walter, 
Chloe and Monica. Thank you so much for listening to Medicine for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with family and friends. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Acast, and YouTube. Follow me on social media at Dr. Jet on Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. See you on our next episode.